And the beat goes on. Hello again, I'm Michael Jackson, and our beat covers the world. Any topic, any time, from any place. I appreciate your company, and if you find fit so to do, looking forward to your emailed responses. We uh, used to give lip service, and not much more, to the idea that once a convicted criminal has done his time, served his term, repaid his debt to society, he could rejoin society, and with luck and determination, get on with life. However, we don't return to them, most of them, their right to participate in elections. Now, that might be changing, starting with Florida, which recently granted the right for most convicted felons, the right to participate and vote. The most succinct criticism of the idea came from the Florida Attorney General, who said, we're putting a lot of felons back into the voting booth, back into the jury room, and back into your home. And I just think that's a terrible thing to do. Attorney General, State of Florida. I'd guess that when most poorer people with a prison record get the opportunity to vote, they're most likely going to register Democrat. Do you think Florida's Attorney General would be as outspoken and critical if most of those freed from incarceration were to register Republican? Just when we're hearing, yet again, the clarion call for tighter gun control in our country, following the disastrous crimes committed on the campus of Virginia Tech in Blacksburg, Virginia, the wounding of so many, and the horrendous loss of life through the insane gun-firing rampage of a sullen loner who possessed legally acquired firearms, another issue is being discussed. Most universities ban firearms, which is the sane approach. But gun advocates are starting to organize. They're pushing for states to make changes. Either way, the debate will be heated, and it'll be passionate, Gun advocates from Utah to Virginia are challenging the academic policies that prohibit weapons at colleges and universities. The argument is, of course, that guns frequently save lives, and they look at this most recent disaster to forward their argument. The claim is that had the students at Virginia Tech had the legal right to be armed and dangerous, they contend that they could have defended themselves. They might have stopped the killer before some 32 of their fellow classmates have been shot to death. I wonder. We will never know. I'm convinced that if guns are permitted on campuses, they will be used and misused. Accidental discharges to fights being settled by bullets instead of fists. It will get more bloody, not less. The co-director of the Johns Hopkins Center for Gun Policy and Research a scholar named John Vernick concludes that the best science we have says that concealed carry laws do not save lives as the proponents contend. Almost every college that has looked at the issue, guns or no guns on campus, has concluded, has rejected the idea. Think about it. Had there been many people with guns on the Virginia Tech grounds, wouldn't you expect many people would be shooting many other innocent people accidentally? We've all heard the NRA mantra, one of them, that guns don't kill people, people do. More accurately, people with guns kill people. We already have too many guns in our great country, resulting in too many tragedies. We surely don't need to compound the prospect of homicides and murders and accidents by more freely condoning or advocating more guns in our midst. Having made those statements, and one could make many more, 
It is clear that I have no intention of running for elective office in this country. It is very tough to win when you butt heads with the NRA. Oh, by the way, expressions overused by a great number of television interviewers give me a sense of, so to speak, as it were, at this point in time. Now's a pretty good word, and surely it does the job. Nancy Pelosi, the congresswoman from California, now the Speaker of the House, really upset the Bush administration when she went to Syria and had a face-to-face meeting with their leader, President Bashar Assad. The date was April 1st. She shrugged off the criticism of her trip to Damascus, saying that it's interesting because three of our colleagues were in Syria the day before, and she didn't hear the White House speaking about them. Her hope was to revive U.S. relations with the country. Republican representatives Joe Pitts, Frank Wolf, Robert Adderholt also met with the Syrian president on the same date, and we haven't heard a peep of complaint out of the Oval Office. Again, they're Republicans. There are times, at the appropriate venue, when President George W. Bush knows just how to deliver a self-deprecating put-down. Sometimes in the Light-hearted, scripted banter, a truth can be told. Meeting before the Radio and Television Correspondents Association dinner, he said, A year ago, my approval rating was in the 30s. My nominee for the Supreme Court had just withdrawn, and my vice president had shot someone. Ah, those were the good old days. It's hard to disagree with that. The New York Times had a wonderful story about the pitfalls, the linguistic pitfalls that might cause some embarrassment all around when the world comes to Beijing for the 2008 Summer Olympic Games. Ahead of the world-renowned event, China is attempting to improve its citizens' public manners and curb behavior which just might, might, shall we say, inadvertently offend some of the foreigners, but I doubt it. One of the most frequent errors in spelling occurs when crab appears on menus, C-R-A-B. It frequently comes out as C-R-A-P. Hardly an interesting delicacy. From a similar menu, a description of a pullet, that's a a less-than-a-year-old hen, it's described as a sexually inexperienced chicken. (laughs) Well, we can at least rely on the fortune cookies. Do you remember when President Bush shook the hand of Russia's Vladimir Putin and told the world thereafter that he had gazed into his eyes, seen his soul, and judged him to have a good heart? And he was convinced that the former KGB man, who for the past seven years has been the leader of his country, was a friend of George Bush's. I wonder if now he'd have a slightly altered view of Comrade Putin. During his terms in office, that country has seen ever-growing state control over the media and continuing erosion of the rule of law and democracy. Simply stated, peaceful protest is not a right accorded the subjects of Vladimir Putin's Russia. As the Wall Street Journal put it over the weekend, several hundred protesters were arrested, including Gary Kasparov, one of the all-time great chess masters. He was taken into custody too. Mr. Kasparov was a former world chess champion. The violent clashes between riot police and pro-democracy demonstrators in Moscow and St. Petersburg are business as usual for the masters of the Kremlin. Gaze into Putin's eyes and you will see the heart of a man who will crack down on any sign of political opposition, no matter how small, using overwhelming force. 
the president of Russia cannot risk a Russian version of Ukraine's grassroots orange revolution. The constitution of that vast country does not permit Putin to serve more than two terms. Parliamentary elections are scheduled for later this year, and the presidential vote takes place next March. I'd place money on it. Putin will try and find a way to serve the prohibited third term. Come to think of it, I don't think I want to gaze into his eyes. Surrounded by newspapers, which is not an infrequent situation for me, I find them still featuring a great number of stories about the rise and fall of an aging radio shock jock of over 30 years, Don Amos. Following his wholly inappropriate, somewhat typical appalling taste attack on a young college basketball team from Rutgers, he's been dropped, he's been fired. At random, here are some of the recent columns and comments. Here's one from uh, Joel Stein, a columnist for the LA Times. His story is headlined, I hated Imus before it was cool. <laughs> he has his own reasons, and they make sense. I never hated him. I never did. I respected his dedication to charitable causes, most particularly children. I just never listened. Because, well, usually he was on the air at the same time as I. And frankly, what I did hear was a boring diatribe broadcast in a mumbled voice. The um, Business Day section of the New York Times here. Uh, off the air, the light goes out for Don Imus. Uh, here's one. CBS radio yields to pressure cutting ties to radio host. This is an extremely successful, extremely wealthy man with an estimated radio income of excess of $10 million a year. That's just radio. Not bad for a fellow heard on only some 60 stations. Another headline, flying solo into the teeth of a maelstrom. I must found himself without safe haven. Think about it. When you lose all your sponsors, for whatever reason, the talent is frequently let go. Let's be frank. Imus has a long history of saying far more negative and divisive things. Here's a heading. The Imus scandal, a second financial blow for struggling CBS radio. It continues, the cost of Don Imus' departure is unclear, but one observer says it's going to be painful. To which I add, enter the lawyers. Imus had recently signed a five-year extension to his contract. I don't think that CBS will miss the I-Man's impact on the business bottom line. He wasn't that successful financially for the network. Legal action will probably go on for ages. But remember, Don, I'll bet you sign what I signed, the standard CBS morals clause. Reverend Sharpton, Reverend Jackson, Alan Jesse. The writer, Gail Saunders, writes here, if they really wanted to help the black community get respect, then they would be addressing what is plaguing it from within. Worth thinking about. My own view on that is, who made Sharpton and Jackson are arbiters of good taste? They've done a lot of good, but they've also done more than their fair share of attacking innocent people in a like fashion. As hateful as Imus's words are, Maybe we should listen more carefully to the words that pound from the boomboxes of this nation, filled with anger, hate, disrespect for women, vulgarity. Now, the Wall Street Journal, their headline, Behind the Fall of Don Imus, a Digital Brushfire. My comment, the problem here is the people he talked about are innocent, young, fresh, talented student athletes who strived and did something excellent. Here's a headline. Media elite winked at Imus's antics because of his bully pulpit. Tim Rutten, the economist, had a lot to say, including 
For some time now, our national conversation, as expressed in commentary and entertainment, has become increasingly coarse, violent, vulgar, and just plain mean. Wouldn't it be great, wouldn't it be great, if his job loss became a turning point in our national dialogue for the better? The Boston Review landed on my desk the other day and posed a variety of questions for one and all to play with or respond to. I'll give you the questions and let you know how their readers felt. The first and most basic question was, and is, was it a mistake to invade Iraq? What do you think? I feel as I felt then, yes. A bad mistake, unfortunate, predetermined or premeditated, falsely aimed at the wrong enemy. Was it a mistake to invade Iraq? If you were, and this is a, a challenging one closer to home, if you were a senator, would you vote for or against a bill that would offer illegal immigrants who already live in the United States more opportunities to become legal workers or citizens? What's your thinking? Just one more for now, and frankly, I was surprised at the Boston Review's response to the following published question. Here goes. Congress has considered a bill to increase the federal minimum hourly wage from, as it is, 5.15 an hour to 6.25. This is to occur within the upcoming year and a half. If you were a member of Congress, would you vote for or against increasing the federal minimum wage? I am very much for it. I have no idea whether the following story is accurate. So why would I repeat it? Because the source is as near to impeccable as possible. It was reported recently by the former National Security Advisor to President Jimmy Carter, Zbigniew Brzezinski, that American military commandos are already operating in Iran, possibly as terrorists targeting our enemies. Are American commandos operating in Iran already? If you ask Brzezinski, it's reported that he will say, I don't know but I have seen allegations to that effect, and I do know that people are getting killed by acts of terrorism, and if it is not us, then who else could it be? Again, I have no knowledge of the accuracy of the story. I just happen to respect the source. Mortimer Zuckerman, the editor-in-chief of U.S. News & World Report, editorializes this week, saying, Look behind the curtain of virtually every major problem in the Middle East, and you will find Iran. Killings in Iraq arms and money for Hezbollah assaults on Israel and Hezbollah's attempts to usurp the elected government of Lebanon, support for Syria, and the list goes on. They point to Iran. Frankly, if all this is true, and in all likelihood it is, then there could be no worse time for us to attack Iran. We are extended, perhaps overextended militarily, and frankly, Iran is in a strong position. Remember the old Vietnam-era bumper sticker? One day they'll give a war and nobody will come. That's it for now. Join us next time. I'm Michael Jackson. Thanks for your company.